We're so glad you're here this morning to, to come to the Gospel of John. Uh, this is a, such a sweet, sweet book. We've been uh, in it for just a couple weeks now, so if you're new, uh, where we're at in the story. Uh, last week, Dr. Foley uh, introduced us. Yeah, yeah, again, we'll just keep using that as much as we can. Introduced us to Jesus' first miracle where he turns water into grape juice and the, the wedding... Oh, that's not what he did. It was water into to wine, and really good wine at that, right? Right. So he, he turns water into wine. And so last week, we had party Jesus. Last week was party Jesus. Last week was, was happy Jesus. Last week was uh, invite this guy over to your house you know, to make the party go well type Jesus. But this week, we don't have wine Jesus. We have whip Jesus. <laughs> It's a, it's a very different Jesus uh, in these two stories. Uh, you, you, you start wondering, you're like, you've lost that loving feeling, Jesus. <laughs> What's happened just in, within that one week? Uh, but what we realize is that both the wine and the whip are needed. Now, some of us are like, well, I'm, I'm more of like the wine person. I'm more of the, the party person. I don't need this... Uh, whipping discipline <laughs> Jesus. Some of us are more or less structured and a little more that way. And we're like, we need both. We need both of this. And this is all, I think, in one, one section on purpose. Um, but what makes us so uncomfortable with this passage is that, is Jesus allowed to be angry like that? Is, like, is, is anger okay? <laughs> is anger a sin? Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion around what, what we should do and shouldn't do with, with this version of Jesus. Uh, and so I think a way for us to understand this and unpack this this morning is we're going to look at this in, as you might guess, three ways. We're going to look at the zoo, the zeal, and the zag. The, the zoo, the zeal, and the zag. I know you love those uh, alliterations, but here we go. The zoo. All right, so just a kind of a, a background of what's happening here. Um, in the other biographies of Jesus's life, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, this story or a story of Jesus cleansing the temple and, and, ch and chasing out the money changers happens at the end of the story. It's right before the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus's life. But in the Gospel of John, it happens at the very beginning of the story of Jesus's life. And so there is a question amongst scholars, did John just say, you know, I'm not really big on, on the chronology of this, I, I, and it has conflated these two events into one, and that, that is one possibility, but I think John seems to be very concerned with the timelines of Jesus' life. In fact, the, one of the main reasons that we believe that Jesus is uh, public ministry was three years is because of the Gospel of John, and he, re he records this Passover and another one and another one. And so you have three years of Passover. And so I think John is actually very concerned with chronology. So what that means is Jesus chases people out of the temple twice. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> that Jesus is whipping people out of the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end, and then so then the question goes, well, why didn't they listen to him the first time? Like, wouldn't humanity respond so positively to Jesus? And then you go, oh, <laughs> humanity isn't really known for that, <laughs> right? We, we, we tend to take a little while to get there. 
So um, what happens here? Jesus is leaving the wedding in Cana, leaving the party. He goes down to Capernaum with his mother and his siblings. He goes into Jerusalem for this, this Passover feast. Now, the Passover feast is an event. Just picture, some people think, over two million people descending on the city of Jerusalem, right, to, to come into this, this, this one temple. So, so not just into this one city, but to this one temple. I mean, it is, it's a pilgrimage for the Jewish nation to come, to go before the temple, and to offer a sacrifice for their sin, to have something pay for their sin. So it is crucial and critical to the Jewish nation to come into, come into God's presence. And one thing that the, the Jews, Jewish nation knew was that you can't approach God without an offering. That you can't approach God without an offering. And so not only did you have two million people coming into this one location, you had them coming along with their cows and their goats and their doves all into one Spot And so just picture it here. I think we might have an image up here of what uh, a recreation of it. Uh, people from all over coming into this one, I would say more of a stadium is kind of what you might want to picture the size of this, a stadium uh, of millions pouring into this and, and all of the sounds and smells and sights of all of the animals that come with that. <laughs> Not yet, but... <laughs> We planned this. Uh, <laughs> how many of you? <laughs> I'm the worst. All right. How many of you, if you had to walk 10 miles and carry a dove or carry a goat with you to church today, would actually come this morning? Any of you? <laughs> like, it becomes more of an ordeal. That you're like, I've got to walk there and I've got to bring tonks with me. I've got to bring an animal with me. Why would I do this, right? Why am I bringing all of that for one day? Now, obviously, you know why they're doing it, but it becomes a, a bigger commitment to do so, right? So, um, but for those who are coming from very far away, let's say you're walking from Spain, you make the pilgrimage, it's not feasible for you to bring your cow that far. And so what the temple would do is they would sell you an animal at the temple for a price, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But they're coming into this temple, and then the first thing they do before they, they, they buy their cow or buy their animal is they pay the temple tax. Again, we'll talk about that as well. So they're coming into the court of the Gentiles. Picture it. This, this temple, this stadium, um, the Passover feast is like a mixture of the Baylor game, mixture of the rodeo, uh, meets Disney with the amount of all the parks coming together, uh, meets a slaughterhouse. So that's it. That's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the Passover feast. You got, you got Baylor game, you got the rodeo, you got Disney, and a slaughterhouse. This is all happening in this one location. And, it's, and so if it's bring your cow to church day, right? <laughs> if we all brought our animal to church on, on a Sunday, and we said bring your animal to church, it would get rather loud in here, wouldn't it? And with all of the people and as many as we could fit in here to where it's shoulder to shoulder, it could get quite loud. It could get quite claustrophobic. There could be lots of animal sounds. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll just keep those animal sounds going. And then while that's happening, then you have the money changers who are bargaining and they're just throwing the money around. It's, it's a little bit hard to hear, right? We can turn it off.
best illustration ever. Uh, so, so you have, you, I'm really grateful for a church that loves me. Thank y'all. So you, you have money clanging. You have animals making, you know, all these sounds. It is hard to worship in that environment. Imagine that sound that we just did and having that as your worship experience on a Sunday morning. It is distracting, is it not? It would be hard to commune with the Creator when all of that is going on. And so, with all that's going on right here, the zoo is happening. (laughs) But let's talk about what the zoo leads to. The zoo leads to the zeal. And so, instantly when Jesus walks into the temple, what does He do? (laughs) It is almost comical that the first thing Jesus does when he walks into the temple, he's like, y'all go ahead. (laughs) I got to make something right quick. And (laughs) Jesus didn't bring a whip with him. He actually paused and made a whip. (laughs) So I don't know how long it takes to make a whip. (laughs) But if you walked into here and you decide, y'all go ahead, I'm just going to make a whip. This could be like three hours. Like, I don't know how long it takes to make the whip. But he says, like, you have to imagine, they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? He's like, Don't worry, you'll see, (laughs) you'll see. And he brings a whip out and he just starts whipping people. (laughs) Like, let's look at this, let's look at this passage. Verses 15 and 16, here we go. After making a whip of cords or rushes, it could be like the the straw from what the animals were sitting on there. He makes a whip of, of cords. He drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. And he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Whew. This is bulls on parade moment. This is rage against the machine. It is, it is Jesus just in this passion, in this, this anger that, it, that is, is pushing people out there. I mean, if you can picture it, like the doves must be flying away like a John Woo movie. Cows are running for their lives and <laughs> not for their lives, right? But Jesus is pushing everyone out of there. Then what would the disciples be saying at that moment? We don't, we don't get what the disciples thought in that moment, but at that moment, they probably thought, he's lost it. <laughs> I'm not with this guy. Like, what would they have been saying? The only thing that we get recorded of what the disciple says, says in ver- is in verse 17, and the disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So zeal, zeal is passion, it's great energy uh, for something. And so Jesus is passionate about the house of God. And when it says that the disciples remembered it, it's not saying in that moment they went, I know what he's doing. It's saying after he dies and resurrects, they're now reflecting back on this moment and remembering what Jesus did in putting it together with this Psalm 69 and saying, zeal for your house has consumed me. They didn't get it at the moment. And so they must have been going like, oh, that's what he was doing. I missed it. But at the time, what were the disciples doing in that moment? They're nowhere to be seen, not helping Jesus. It's not recorded that. And so I'm wondering, were they at that moment tone policing Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, hey, hey, let's, let's get together for coffee. Ooh, is that awkward? Right? Hey, 
you know, the way you did that, it just, it just didn't really display the love of the gospel to the people. You know, as Christians, we don't do that. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> telling Jesus that what he is doing doesn't display the love of the gospel? I mean, that, that, I, I just wonder, like, this is not true of, of what happened there, but wondering where, in their absence, what are they doing? And I think there, this is something that's true. There's a, in the Christian subculture, we secretly believe that anger is a sin. That to be angry is to sin. And if that's true, then Jesus just sinned. And we know that cannot be true. And so can you be angry? Yes, is the answer. Okay, thanks for talking back. Uh, <laughs> Ephesians 4, 26 27. We read this earlier. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil, devil an opportunity. And so it says two things. One, be angry. And you're like, check. I'm great at that. <laughs> I can do that. But then it says another thing. It says, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I, I, think, the only, I think the reason we have trouble with anger is because we've only seen the corrupt version of anger. We've only seen hatred fueling anger. I mean, that, that, we, that's not righteous, good anger. That, that's evil anger. And so I think some of us are like the Hulk, and we, we say, my, my secret is that I'm always angry, right? That, I, I, that anger is just boiling and bubbling under the surface so that at any moment I can rage out. That might be some of us. And if that's you, this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card where you're thinking, Oh, I get to be angry? Thank you, Slim, for that freedom, right? I was just going to roast someone online, but now I'm going to make a whip and start whipping people. This is not what we're trying to do, right? So this is, this is not that. That is not what is happening in this passage. Because even, even later in that Ephesians passage, it goes on in verses 31, or in verse 31, it says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all. So be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. It's saying that if you, if you stay angry, if you let anger sit in you, it, it, the devil uses that, that open door and he slides in and he makes that become a bitterness that is, that is growing in you and of wrath. And that, so this is, what, this is what, the de- what Jesus is arguing against here and saying, or what Paul is saying, be angry and do not sin. Because Jesus, who is angry in this passage, we want, I think we would count whipping people as anger. Jesus, who is angry in this passage, also says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so if, if you do struggle with anger, I would just encourage you, admit your struggle and see how Christ loves his enemies and loves us when we persecuted him. But that's not what's happening in this passage. I think specific to this passage, and this, I think this is also a problem in the, in the Christian subculture, is that most Christians, not all, but I think most don't actually struggle with too much anger. I think Christians struggle with no anger at all. And we try to kill people with niceness in these subtleties like this. It's not that we're too angry, it's that we're not angry enough. A guy named uh, John Christensen said, He who is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause sins. 
for unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. Oh, <laughs> unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. He just went from preaching to meddling, right? <laughs> I don't like what he just told me here because what he's trying to say is that patience is a good trait, but if we make it ultimate and the only trait of God, then we now miss out on the full character of God. We need to hold those intentions because there are some things that make Jesus angry. Like standing by while a woman is assaulted, that's just wrong. You don't use patience there. Standing by while children are being abused is not a, a virtue of patience. It's wrong. There is a time to use patience and there's a time to act. There is time to act. And so what is it that makes Jesus angry? Well, in our passage here, the what makes Jesus angry are two things. The misuse and the abuse in the temple. It's misuse and the abuse in the temple. And the, the misuse of it is not really the zoo itself. The zoo is not the problem. In fact, it was good. They were encouraged and told to bring those animals. The zoo's not the problem. It's the location of the zoo. It's the location of the market. It's the location of selling all of these things in the house of God so that people can't worship. It was that they became a distraction for true worship because the house of God where we're supposed to worship is, as Jesus says, is a house of prayer. A house to, to, to actually revere and worship our creator. And so it is a distraction from true worship. And I ask you today, what is that distraction for you? What distracts you from true worship this morning? What is it that, that, is, that is taking your mind away from worship? But it's not just the misuse, it's also the abuse. And we actually learn this from the other biographies of Jesus' life, uh, is, is that it wasn't just the confusion and the clutter and the noise that Jesus was angry about. Jesus was angry about the injustice of what was going on. In Matthew 21, 13, Jesus says, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. Something serious is going on here, and there's something seriously wrong of what's happening right here. The priests were robbers and thieves of God's people. They were thieves. You ever, you ever walked into a used car dealership? And you, you may have actually bought the car, but you walk out and you have such buyer's remorse because it was such a bad experience. There was just constant upselling and there was just so much deceit that happened in that moment that you walked away feeling gross. Has that ever happened to you? Or you just felt sick, like that person just tried to pull that on me or successfully did I succumb to that. There is something so deceitful about it that makes you, makes you want to revolt to that. That was the temple. That is what's happening in the temple. Because once a year, every Jewish male with living within 15 miles had to go to the temple and pay the temple tax. And so that temple tax was the, the fee. That's not bad, but it's to, to pay for all the nasty business of slaughtering all these animals, right? So that's not the bad part. What is the bad part is when you get to the temple, you can't use your money. You need to use the temple coins. So you guys go to Chuck E. Cheese. 
You put your dollar in the machine, because you can't use your own United States dollar. You put your dollar machine, you get the four coins that equal like <laughs> one dollar actually verse, uh, equals 50 cents, right? It's not, a, it's not a fair exchange there. If you've been overseas and you've had to actually go exchange your money in, in other currencies, one, you have to pay the fee to do the exchange, but two, it's not usually a helpful uh, or a beneficial transaction. Usually you end up losing money as you're making that transaction. That is exactly what is happening in the temple. Not only are they having to pay this token, but it was sometimes as much as half of what they brought to the temple. And if you remember, over almost two million people coming to the city and doing this, like the temple is making bank on what's happening here. And not only on the temple tax, then they're supposed to bring, they're supposed to raise their, their animals. I mean, if you, if you raised little Sean the sheep and you, you raised him to the point where you're like, I love Sean, I don't want to sacrifice Sean, and you bring it to the temple, and this is like a, your act of sacrifice, I'm, sa- I'm, I'm giving you little baby Sean, and the priest says, sorry, not pure enough. Now, there was some truth that the, the, the animals had to be without blemish. And so if it was blind in the eye or had a tear in the skin, it wasn't to be offered to the Lord. But it was known that the priests were almost always saying no to all of the animals that were brought there, that you took this pilgrimage to, to bring your animal to. And so at that point, they say, it's not an it's not a, a animal without blemish. And so now what are you going to do? Well, if I want to worship, now I'm going to buy from the temple. Good thing we have a whole host of, of animals here you can buy from. And so now they're making money on that. But it gets worse. Who, who, who loses the most when greed is at its peak? The poor. So the poor could buy a dove, which is probably what they could afford for their sacrifice. They could buy a dove for 15 cents on the street in our equivalency. But they go into the temple, and now it's $15. Is your blood starting to boil a little bit of going, this is not right? Like, why would God's people do this? I'm sure they didn't intend to say, let's exclude the poor. It was just, just a little greed. But now the poor are, saying, are coming into God's temple, and they're hearing, you can't worship and we're, now we're being told that the way to worship is you have to have money. You have to be able to purchase God's love. You have to be able to afford God's grace. The same problem happened in Luther's day with the sale of indulgences where you were literally paying for your sins to be taken away. And the poor can't afford that. And so now they're being told, go away. Deal with your sin on your own. Like... This is what angers Jesus. It is abuse and misuse. This is what is angering Jesus, is those who are affecting and and impugning the poor's entry into his kingdom. It's anger at injustice, it's racism and bigotry. It's this good, righteous anger. And so there are certain things that make Jesus angry. But my question is, does it ever make the church angry? Like, abuse of the poor clearly makes Jesus of Nazareth angry. But does it make the church angry? White supremacy makes Jesus angry. Does it make the church angry? 
Like, what are these things doing? When, you, when, you are, when you're telling the poor that you can't come in here, that you can't buy this, that you have no access to God, that is satanic. The way we treat the poor sometimes is just satanic. Let's just call white supremacy for what it is. It is satanic to say that we are going to elevate one group as being the one who has the real access to the Father, and we're going to exclude others. And we'll do it in very subtle ways now because we've gotten really creative on how we're going to do this. It is satanic. Classism, racism, all of this is satanic. And so if, if God is angry about these things, should the church stay silent? If we are staying silent, what are we agreeing to? It is not okay. Patience isn't a virtue in this moment. My question here now at Mosaic is, would the poor be welcome in our church? I really want to know. And I really am praying for Jesus to overturn tables for us to find out. Like, what, what are we doing that is not inviting and welcoming for the poor to feel at home in our midst? What do we need to do? I pray in Jesus in his zeal for the hurting, for the marginalized, for those with special needs, that he would, he would have us just overturn these tables and search for what that is. But the key difference between Jesus' anger and I think my own anger is that Jesus gets angry for people. He is angry for someone, and I think I'm just, dis, just a little annoyed with people. I'm just angry that someone cut me off. That's not angry. That's not righteous anger. Jesus is angry for someone. Every single time in the scriptures, when you see Jesus angry, he is angry for someone. And what that means is that he is angry for you. He is angry for you, not at you. He is committed to you. And so the root of what makes Jesus angry is actually love. He is angry for you and your neighbor. And so how can you be angry and not sin? Let's be, have a zeal for someone. And so you've seen the zoo, the zeal, and now let's go to the zag. Every time that Jesus seems to, we, we think Jesus is going to zig, he zags, right? He, he, he goes in a different way that we expect him to do. He goes into this cosmic mode, and everyone's going, what is Jesus talking about, right? We don't know hardly ever what Jesus is doing. Thankfully, we have the scriptures to explain it to us, but if we were the disciples, we would be remembering later, as we're about to see, oh, <laughs> that's what Jesus was doing, right? Look at verse 18. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Now, this is a reasonable question. Here's a guy who just came into the church and started kicking people out of the church. <laughs> You're like, sir, who are you? <laughs> What authority do you have to just kick people out of the temple? Uh, could you prove it with a sign? What's your authority? So I think it's a reasonable question um, of why you're kicking people out of the church. But then verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. So they're asking, all right, do a sign, levitate for us. <laughs> Shoot lasers from your eyes. Make the wine again, Jesus. Do that, do that cool trick. And Jesus says, Destroy this temple, I'm going to raise it in three days. And they're like, <laughs> it, uh, what? Now, you have to imagine their, their frustration, their, their confusion. It's because they are currently standing in the temple. 
They are currently in the temple, and when Jesus says, destroy this temple, it sounds like he's talking about that temple, and he will raise it in three days. So then verse 20 through 22, therefore the Jews said, the temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered oh, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. No one seems to get Jesus in the moment. <laughs> I think that's good news for us. We don't seem to get Jesus in the moment. It's usually later we have to think back upon it and go, that's what he was doing in my life. But what Jesus is now telling them, he's given them a re-education of the temple. You think you know what the temple is. Let me get you a re-education of what the temple is. It, the temple is the place that you experience God. It is where God dwells in our midst. And so the temple or the sanctuary of God is how God resides with his people. And it, it starts in the garden with Adam and Eve. You have the, the garden sanctuary, the garden temple where God is with his people. But obviously they sin, they get cast out of the temple. But then God in his grace allows them to make a portable temple called the tabernacle. It's this giant tent that they're, they're following God out throughout the Middle East there, following this, this cloud of smoke or this pillar of fire. And in the, the back room, the holy of holies of the temple is where you met the Shekinah glory of God. That's where God's presence resided at the mercy seat, at the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is, this is where you met with God. Now, that priest could only go into the, to that holy of holies once a year. And so, who got to go in there? Only the priest. The people had to make that offering, that sacrifice. The priest then had to make the sacrifice on the behalf of the people. Now, the temple, it gets to, it, it, they, then Solomon comes along and he says, let's make a physical temple. And he builds this giant, beautiful, gorgeous temple where God's house, it's where God resides. But then, obviously, as you know, that the temple gets, gets ransacked, gets torn down. Israel gets taken into exile. You can think of the time of Daniel and Babylon. And then they come back. And after so many years, they rebuild the temple. And now they're standing in this temple project that took 46 years to build. You thought your church building project was long. <laughs> this one took 46 years. And they said, you're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? You can understand their confusion. But what Jesus is trying to say is that the temple is about experiencing God experiencing where God dwells. And so he is now coming to them and he's, he's saying, I'm going to tell you that all of those temples were all about experiencing God. And all those temples were actually pointing to the true temple in Jesus right here, that he is the true temple. And so that if you destroy his body, he will raise it in three days. That You can't destroy that access to the Father. The true temples point to Jesus. And so when you brought your lamb, it, you, were, you were pointing to the true lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. That Christ's death was the ultimate moment in history where your sacrifice wasn't just a symbol in, of hopes that your sin was being paid for. It was actually paid for in that moment when Jesus died on the cross. That your sin was actually paid for. And you know that your debt, that, that payment was secure and for sure is because God accepted that gift when he raised from the dead. That is the best news in the world. This is, this, is, this is what we put our hope and faith in, that we are not bringing anything to the temple because Jesus says, I am the true temple, but he's also the high priest and he's also the lamb. He's doing it all. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good that Jesus is doing it all. We bring nothing to it. And so then imagine his frustration when he walks into the temple. And he's like, this place is a train wreck. They, they are so far from me. Even the people that are here making the effort, bringing the animals, it is, it, they are so far from me. It is, it is mechanical. There's no relationship. They're just going through the motions. They have squeezed out any real communion with me. Can the same be said to be true today of God's church? Have we squeezed out any real communion with God? Do we come to church and do we actually meet with our creator and commune with him? Or do we just go for the show? It, it, not to make you uncomfortable, but this is what worship is about. It is to commune with our creator to actually come and bring an offering, to commune with the living God. And so Jesus is constantly thinking about his death and his resurrection. Is the church thinking about those things too? Let me, let me zag one more time. Let me, let me as, as what happens after Jesus dies and he's resurrected, what is wild is we find out that not only is Jesus the true temple, that now because God's spirit is poured out on all of us, that we become the temples of the living God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This room, that as John said, people have been worshiping in for over a hundred years, is not the sanctuary of God. This is the living room of God's house. Yes, this is God's house. This is where his children come together and gather in the living room. But the sanctuary, you are the sanctuary. The Holy Spirit resides in each and every one of you. And which is great and beautiful things. But what is Jesus now saying to you in light of this passage? What possible misuse and abuse of your temple is God doing, or are you doing? If you look back and saying, how am I being so distracted from worship? And I have to confess, I, I, I want to do so many things. And I think so many rectangles take up the space in my life that could be spent communing with Jesus, but they're spent on these rectangles, whether it's a phone, whether it's a TV, whether it's a book. But am I actually spending time with my creator? What is distracting you from worship? What about not just misuse, but what about abuse? What about the corruption in our temple? whether it's porn, whether it's greed, whether it's misogyny, whether it's bitterness or arrogance or whatever it is that, God, that, that has corrupted your temple, God wants to come in with the whips and say, get it out of here. It has no place here. Get these distractions and get this corruption out of here. We want, I want you to actually commune with me. Do you see the love he has for you as he's whipping, right? Jesus wants to drive out all of that corruption because he is angry for you. He loves you that much because when Jesus makes his home inside your heart, it is both painful and it is wonderful. It's painful because you, as now, you start to, you start to hurt and start to, to feel what he feels. And so what makes Jesus angry makes you angry. And so you start to see some of the, some of the flaws in God's church. Y'all, I love God's church. I love this church, but I love God's church. But right now in our day in history, there's a lot that's coming out that's making it hard to love God's church, right? 
There's a, I feel like there's a light shining in the darkness on God's church. And what happens when you shine light in the darkness? You see some, you see some things you don't want to see. You see some critters. You see some ugly things. But that light is exposing what has been festering there for so long. And here's the good news. The fact that God is shining the light on the church to me is good news because it means he still has zeal for his house. It means that he still cares about it enough to not let those imperfections grow like a cancer and take over. That God still cares about the house of God. He still has a zeal for it, and so he's still angry about it. Now for you, as God is, is that angry and still cares about the house of God, and if each individual one of us are little mini houses of God, he still, he still cares about you. And so I would say, be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged that the anger of the Lord is angering, is, has an anger for you. And that he wants to drive out whatever is taking and, and distracting you from God. He wants to drive out whatever it is that that is corrupting your soul. And it's not going to feel good when he does that. But be encouraged. He is doing that because he loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. God is not done with you. He's not given up on the church and he's not given up on you. Be encouraged because Christ is angry at whatever is in the way of that worship. Be encouraged because Christ is angry at all of that corruption Jesus hates that sin so much that he is willing to die for it. That's how much he loves you. And so, brothers and sisters, Christ's zeal is for you. Don't let the zoo get in the way of that communion with God. Let's pray.